0: Welcome to another edition of the 7 Innings Podcast. Bemo, Smitty, Scarborough, JDH, Jess, and Maddie are with us today on the program. We got a lot of good stuff lined up. Follow us on your social media at 7 Innings Podcast, and you can get today's lineup card. Uh, we got some good stuff for Women's History Month. Of course, we're going to shag some stats. It's opening weekend for some teams around the SEC. And don't look now, but, well, actually, do look now. And who's number one in the very first NCAA RPI? That's all coming up on today's program. And why don't we start out right there, Michelle Smith, with a little hokey pokey. Va Tech goes down to Clemson and sweeps them. And now they are the number one team in all the land in terms of RPI. What'd you see? Oh, my
1: gosh, ladies. The, uh, amazing. Okay. Virginia Tech, we've talked about them. We know they're good. But going into Clemson and sweeping They looked brilliant. They looked outstanding in the circle. Their defense was phenomenal. And the one area that I think we were worried about was their hitting. They went in with like a a two-something batting average as a team. Don't worry about them. Really, that's what came out of this. Don't worry about them. Offensively, they're on fire. Obviously, Keely Rochard, outstanding in the circle. Um, How about their freshman pitcher that backs up, Emma Limley? She was outstanding in game two. Her numbers, her statistics in that game were incredible she gave up three hits that's it in that game 10 Ks, only 104 pitches she was lights out and offensively we were talking about the big bat kelsey bennett she she was just incredible in game two she was three for four she had three rbis for the series she had seven hits she just was doing all of it i'm impressed with virginia tech i i have to say i thought they were good um i think they're great coming out of that series
2: yeah, and what you just named, they did that on the road too. I mean, Clemson and Clemson's environment is not easy to plan. There were fans that were just packed behind home plate, in the outfield, everywhere. Michelle, when I think about this team, I look to their pitching staff with Keely Rochard and Emma Lemley and Ivy Rosenberry pitched a little bit as well, but they are able to throw complete games. You just don't see that anymore. And it's a big deal because if one pitcher can throw a complete game, then another pitcher can rest. And I just think that there's something about a pitcher, throwing a complete game, or even just getting a a quality start going deep into a game that settles everybody else. It settles the defense, it settles the offense, and everybody feels like I, that they're really getting a, an outing out of a leader in the circle for them. Or, exactly. what are you about to say, Michelle? I, I feel you just yes. coming at me here.
1: Well, because the other thing that's been a discussion, you know, with the wristbands and the calls from the dugout, they call their own game. McKinsey Lauder, senior catcher. They call their own game. They get information from the dugout, strengths, weaknesses, all that good stuff. But they call their own game and the game. The game travels. And I love it. Right. It's good pace of play. There's nothing better than that, than a softball game. That's a great pace of play. And not only is it
3: a great pace of play, but you had a key at bat off the bench in Morgan Overitis with that big home run to give them the lead. So I love the fact that they're able to be potent off the bench on a non starter situation. Clemson come, came through with a bunch of defensive miscues and we've seen that really hurt a lot of teams. Defense is losing ball games. And that's the thing that really has to tighten up as these teams head into conference play.
4: And I know when we looked at Virginia Tech, obviously the question coming into this season was, were they going to have the offense to back up the pitchers in the circle? Because we know they have fantastic pitching in the circle. But what really impressed me was the way that they were able to make offensive adjustments going up against somebody like Valerie Cagle, who's known as one of the best pitchers across the nation. And, and you look at game one and they started to get more aggressive early in the count as the game went on. They didn't let Kegel get deep into counts and that's where they were successful. And when you look at their stat lines, they put up 29 hits Pretty much all of them were singles. They were just hitting single after single after single. And then, of course, the big home run like Jenny just mentioned. But they were finding ways to win. Not typical ways that we see, especially nowadays with the long ball, the the extra base hits. But they were just peppering singles right back up the middle and really putting it to Clemson. Yeah, that's exactly what stood out
5: because that's been the MO of Virginia Tech in the past. And so watching their at bats and I I didn't see that entire series when I watched them earlier in the season. And that's I mean, you hear about their pitching, you hear especially the ACC. It's a lot of pitching dominant conversation. But when they get into the postseason, when they get later is is the at bats and being able to put the ball in play. There's so many strikeouts that we've seen from teams that have been so good from Virginia Tech in the past. Emma Ritter watching her at bats and grinding. I mean, that's where this team needs to absolutely beat. It's not only putting the ball in play, but getting those singles, getting those hits, and honestly, getting the offense to back their great pitching.
1: And, and one thing I'll say real quick on uh, the flip side for Clemson, um, the inning that they scored in that, that first game, the fourth inning, um, it was crazy to me that Valerie Cagle, they came out and the, it was like, we're swinging at early in the count. She gave up in that inning, I think it was eight hits. Seven of the eight were on the first pitch. And they never made any adjustments. They didn't throw a change up. They didn't start with a rise ball over the head. It was crazy to me. It was, uh, you know, first pitch single, first pitch single, another 0-1. So another early count single. And then the big blow was Jamie Bailey, the grand slam. And that kind of just set the tone for the entire uh, series. But at some point, as a pitcher and a catcher, you, you got to change some things. If you know people are being aggressive early in the count, throw a couple balls, you know, mix your speeds early on in. I was just surprised that Valerie Cagle didn't do that.
0: And that's why on our lineup card in the leadoff spot is hokey Pokies. Thank you very much. Uh, that's how they got it done. Let's stay in the ACC before we talk a little SEC and Pac-12. Are we already worried about Clemson? Smitty kind of alluded to that. And just how deep is the league? Pitt shocks Florida State, hands the Knowles, JDH, their first loss of the year. I think that
3: was such an important game for Pitt to be able to come back in that game three and get the win. You know, Florida State, we've seen the long ball out of them, which we didn't see a year ago, but we've also seen some hiccups for them. And that's what they showed in that game three unable to come through with the key hit when they needed it. And late inning heroics is kind of the MO for Florida State. And they just didn't have it in that game three. So for me, yeah, they're going to be good in the circle, but Pitt was able to show. That Florida State is beatable, so down goes one of the four unbeatens this last weekend. I think when we watched Clemson last year, they
2: just had what I'm calling like a Clemson magic to them. Like you would watch them play with this energy. It always felt like they were in a game, like it just felt different last year. And this year I just, and and it is a totally a softball analyst feel thing from being around the game. They just, to me, they just don't have it. And that's not to say that they can't get it. They just don't have it yet. They've played a tougher schedule. They have expectations now. So I think that there's a a lot that goes into that, particularly with Valerie Cagle, but they, they just don't have that Clemson magic yet, but I still think that they can get it.
4: Amanda, to your point, do you think that maybe it has something to do with this year? They're kind of the team and the players specifically that are going out there playing with a target on their back rather than kind of being the underdog? kind of floating under the surface. I guess that's kind of what I'm seeing. I think it's a completely different shift in mentality when you go up there being the person with your target on your back. And in a sense, everything to lose, if we want to call it that. I know it's still early in the season, but winning all of those accolades having to come back this year, it's a different type of mentality, not necessarily being the underdog anymore.
2: Yeah, I agree. But my man, two, two or three ACC teams in the World Series is just looking better and better every week, Beth.
0: I mean... Well, and, and that's the thing, Amanda, especially for, for Virginia Tech, you want to host, you want to be a top eight seed, not a top 16 seed. That improves your chances greatly on advancing to the Women's College World Series. We are on the road to the WCWS. Uh, we're we're going to jump into SEC opening weekend for a few teams around the conference. We'll get into that a little bit later on in the lineup card. But first and foremost, we want to start with high-tide Alabama, one of those two remaining unbeaten, along with Oklahoma, they beat Texas twice this weekend, Maddie, and we're going to see them against LSU coming up this weekend in their SEC opening series. Kaylee Tau is the only returning starter to their lineup from the World Series last year. They've done an incredible job of blending rookies, transfers, and players returning from injury this year. Yeah, one of those
4: transfers has a very familiar. Last name on that squad. Um, Of course, I'm talking about my sister. Uh, But yeah, you know, I, 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 of course, I'm biased when I watch my sister, but I think I was really impressed with just the way that she was able to handle her at bats me flipping over not in the sister mode, but over into analyst mode. You can just tell when there are batters up to the plate that are in complete control of their at bat every single pitch that they're swinging at every single pitch that they're not swinging at and that's something that I saw from Allie Shipman over the course uh, of this past weekend specifically looking at those Texas games. Uh, Texas I thought came out and played better than we've seen them play earlier on uh, throughout their early part of the season Um, but there were a couple of times where they went into the shift on uh, Allie in, uh, in particular and then pitched against the shift um, so they were shifting all pull side and then they ended up throwing her outside and she just smacked that thing into the right center gap. Um, but what really impressed me out of Alabama squad, um, we know that they have depth in the circle right but they came into this weekend without Lexi Kilfoyle she had a boot on her on her foot and so she was sitting out in the dugout. And I think Alabama took that as an opportunity to, one, get Jayla Torrance more innings, and two, try to build up Montana Fouts' endurance in the circle early on. You saw her playing in, or pitching in several games throughout last weekend. We know what she has the ability to do. She can bring that ball in there in the high velocity. But can she sustain that all the way from the start of season to the very end of season? And I think we saw a great example of how coaches are preparing for the postseason uh, all the way back in March by having her throw several innings uh, for Alabama this weekend, of course, coming out undefeated yet again. So they're just continuing to show uh, why they're one of the best teams in the country, I think.
5: You know, Maddie, you know, the softball players, one of the biggest questions we always get, you know, from parents, from young players is, you know, what do I need to be able to get to that next level? I Tell teams right now, watch Alabama softball and watch how they compete. We can talk all day long about mechanics, but when I look at their at-bats especially, they know how to grind. They know how to come back from an 0-2 count and battle. This is a team right now that just understands their level of confidence and swag and everything that you cannot teach. Yet Patrick Murphy is able to be able to get players, even though they don't have the return that they've had in the past to get all of these transfers to come in and have the one common thing and understanding how to compete.
2: It also helps whenever you're not giving up runs. The most runs that they've given up is four And that was to Texas in that first game. They are limiting the run production. Of course, they have the pitching staff, but I don't remember us talking here about an Alabama defense that has seven errors all season up to this point, 980 above fielding percentage. So as much as yes, they are competing. Yes, they are grinding out at bats and they have the pitching. This defense is stepping up for them and keeping them in every single game. And to your point, Maddie, when you're talking about your sister, when I, when I've been thinking about Alabama's offense I keep going back to her I feel like Allie Shipman has been in so many RBI situations when the team needs a run when the team needs a great at bat when the team needs somebody to step up it is Allie Shipman getting it done for them every single time and that's not even talking about what she does back behind the plate I mean that would be a whole other section talking about
3: batteries but she's been so impressive and such a good addition to their team instantly And that goes down to culture, you know, in teams in the past, it has not always been such a focus, but now with the transfer portal, you have to have a healthy culture on your campus to be able to take in these players from other schools who have very different backgrounds, acclimate them quickly, and then give them an opportunity to shine right out of the gate. Alabama is one of those programs that just has a dynamic culture a family feel. I mean, even as an analyst, as you step in, Patrick Murphy makes you feel like you're one of the family and you almost want to pick up a bat and go, go hit. But I think that's the key to Alabama's success is the culture that they've created because it's brought in quality individuals, not just as freshmen, but as transfers as well. Michelle?
1: Yeah, and, and Jenny, to your point, when we talked to coach earlier today about uh, the series coming up against LSU, it's one of the things he said. He said, I love this team and they love each other. The culture, the fact that they're having fun together, they enjoy each other, they're hanging out. It, you can just see it. You can see the way they're playing. The passion comes out. Uh And and again, to 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 kind of echo some of the statistics on Allie Shipman. She's got 26 RBIs on the season. That's twice more than anyone else on the team. So it's almost like she's just been thrown in the fire and been challenged. But when you look at her situational statistics off the chart, she's hitting 520 with runners in scoring position, 800 with runners on second or third with less than two outs. With two outs, she's hitting 571. I mean, you could go on and on, but the one stat that I love for Alabama that just shows the unity of the team. And you know me, I talk about this all the time, productive outs, success with moving runners as a team. They're at five. Fifty, Almost 550, 545. So it just shows that they're doing what they need to do to elevate the team. It's not about the individual, right? The name on the back It's about the big A on the front. And I I love this team. They're a lot of fun to watch. It'll be interesting to see how far they can go uh, undefeated at this point so far. I think everybody knows who the math
0: major is in our crew now. Smitty is digging the analytics. A deep dive. I love it. I love it. Uh, The tide is definitely high for Alabama as they roll into LSU. The, the one thing that stuck out to me as the English major of the bunch is a quote from Coach Murphy. The players, when they talked about the key to their chemistry, it's because we're all weird. And uh, I, I dig that about their chemistry. I dig that about our chemistry and about everybody out there because we're all a little bit weird. Speaking of weird, let's listen to Mendoza talk about Stanford. Um, we, <laughs> we knew that they were rolling along and we knew just that they would be facing their first big test of the year when they hit the road to Stillwater to face Smitty's uh, cow pokes. uh, And and they passed that first test. They got a split. Yeah. And I think the, you
5: know, all eyes were on the big star for Stanford and Elena Votter and watching her by, by the way, very Kira girl esque to like throw back. I was hoping Jen Schroeder was going to be on this one to throw it back to a UCLA, but her, her drop ball, an off-speed combination. I don't think I've ever seen it so on, and it needed to be. I mean, we remember Stanford going into a very turmoil, high turmoil place in postseason last year. Elena kind of struggled, to be honest, with being able to perform, you know, somewhere that was away from home. I, You know, you could hear those Pope fans <laughs> yelling and screaming and harassing. And I loved it for her because it was the best combination of her pitches and her mentality all coming together. And that's, that's huge for someone that they're going to 100% lean on. But can we talk about the offense? Because, I mean, they're going against Miranda Ellish. I mean, everything that that they were able to do. I mean, Taylor Gindelsberger. I mean, one of my favorite players, she's a center fielder, she's a left-handed batter, but like the at-bats that she was grinding out throughout the entire weekend too, not just that game in Oklahoma State. And Sydney Hoff, the junior second baseman, I mean, she's batting 400, three triples, hit her first ever career home run um, in that uh, throughout the weekend. So I I just look at the offensive production. We talked about it with Virginia Tech. We knew that Stanford was going to have the pitching. That's, Botter has been the main story. I wanted to see offense and they absolutely showed it and throughout the lineup, but those two and Taylor and Sydney needed to step up. They're older. And I have one more name for you, especially because when you think about Vodder, you think about other teams now in softball, it can't just be relying on one. This is a staff, but one pitcher that's really showed me something. And she's a senior Molly Millar. No one knows her name. But she has come in because remember, Stanford's a drop ball, pitch, and step. Like everyone's like pounding people hard, going down in the zone. Molly Millar comes in, and, and I love this story because she has not played. She is a senior. She's maybe played three, four, five games her entire career. And now they've been able to really, really utilize her rise ball in a way that's come alive to, to come in out of the bullpen and been a huge, huge tool, something that Stanford has needed when their ace is able to not be able to perform. So I, I, I love Elena Votter, all that she's doing. I needed to see more than just her from Stanford and they showcase that this weekend.
2: Yeah, but they... When she wasn't pitching, you know, so when we talk about a pretender or a contender and we talk about Stanford, I have really high hopes for them as well. And I think that they are super competitive, but they ended up still losing whenever she didn't get time in the circle. And so they have another chance. In my opinion, I am going to be watching Stanford like a hawk because they will get tested with playing Northwestern and Missouri again. And I think that Stanford made a little bit of noise up to this point but in my opinion I think that this could be a make or break type of an opinion feel not for the postseason or anything like that but in terms of how we're talking about Stanford if they go in and make a little noise against Northwestern and a very good Missouri team okay all in but I still think that they need to show a little bit more depth behind Vodder who is an all-American type pitcher and can be anybody on any given day 100%
0: I like Kira gerole as the front runner for this year, this week's episode, since we're celebrating women's history month, she's still the only pitcher ever to throw a no-no in a national championship game. I think Megan Feremo. did she have a perfecto this past week? We're going to be talking about perfect games coming up a little bit later. Um, we also did want to mention too, obviously a very emotional weekend uh, for everybody around Stanford. And for most people in, in college athletics, um, who ha- have been touched by the passing of Katie Meyer, the, uh, the uh, terrific goalkeeper for Stanford. And um, you know, we're, we're going to dedicate an entire episode coming up next month to, to mental health issues and you know, how to take good care of ourselves, how to take good care of each other. Um, if you're, if you need help, if you're hurting out there, reach out to your family, reach out to your friends or teammates, your coach, find a counselor that can help you the world is a much better place with you still in it. And I, I know we were all thinking about Katie and, and you saw it with, you know, a lot of their other sports teams, their women's basketball team that won the PAC 12 championship. Jess, they were all wearing uh, KM um, somewhere on their bodies and on their sneakers to, to remember her, but so important, um, not only to deal with our physical fitness, but our mental fitness as well. So we're, we're, uh, we're looking forward to dedicating an entire episode of the podcast uh, uh, coming up here in, in the next month or so. So stick around for that. Um Moving on uh, our lineup card, we're going to take some of your questions in our mailbag. Of course, we're going to shag some stats. Uh, we did hear from uh, Vegas Vicky uh, this week, 30 to 1 odds right now on the strip um, that the uh, front runner for the new World Series T-shirt on the back, our phrase will be, my favorite number is Title nine Roman numeral nine. Uh Since we're celebrating Women's History Month, we thought it would be a great opportunity uh, right now. I think Jen Schroeder in the last uh, week or so has talked to a couple of members of that very first, 40 years ago, very first NCAA championship team from UCLA.
6: Hello, my name is Debbie Allenson. I played as Debbie Hauer uh, for UCLA in 1982. We won the very first NCAA softball championship. And when we went to uh, Omaha, Nebraska for the World Series, the first Women's College World Series. Our biggest game was actually our rival, which was Cal State Fullerton. And they had beat us, like they were the only team to beat us that year. We uh, had to face them on the uh, semifinals, and it was a really good game and we ended up winning. <laughs> so we came off. Uh, the high that game and had to come back and play the championship the next morning. The sixth inning is when uh, we got a couple runners on and then Dot Richardson <laughs> comes up to bat. They walk her intentionally to get to me. <laughs> I just remember thinking I did not want to I did not want to ground out or hit into a double play. <laughs> just like don't hit into a double play. I had um, two strikes on me and I knew she was going to go up and away and there it was and so I hit I hit the long fly ball to right field which was a sacrifice fly we had to defend in the bottom of the seventh and uh, catching that last out was just like yes we got I was like revenge almost (laughs) you know about three or four weeks later they you know the season was over and the coach called all the, the, the whole team in for a meeting. And so we all went into this room up in is you know an office up there near Polly Pavilion. And Judy Holland, who was the athletic director, was there. And I think there was like a little cake or something, and then they presented us with these rings. and we had no idea we were even going to get a ring. We, that was a total surprise. It was hard earned, I mean, in the sense of the whole progression of women's sports. I mean, from Title IX on, you know, we were, we were grateful to get the cake. But the ring, <laughs> the ring has a lot of significance now, that, um, you know, anybody who wears it knows that not only was it a personal sacrifice, commitment, hard work, but it was also, uh, it's also something that's special with uh, the progression of women's sports.
7: I grew up in a small town in Central California. Nobody on my father's side of the family had ever gone to college. It wasn't expected that you would go to college. It certainly wasn't expected that you would play sports as a girl. Um, without Title IX, without UCLA, I wouldn't be here today. I would have had the success. And I would not have been able to pass that success on to the generations of Bruins that have come after me. I say that my career success is 100% because of the experience I had as a student athlete at UCLA. I went to graduate school. I got an MBA right after playing at UCLA. And then I went into the corporate world. So I spent 30 plus years in corporate America, uh, finished my career as the chief human resource officer for a Fortune 100 company. So I spent my time in C-suites with senior executives. And the reason I chose business, quite honestly, is because it was as close to competing in a sport that I could find. It's about you know, kind of teamwork and competitiveness and winning and being their best every day. Let's face it, softball is a failure sport, you know? You succeed three times out of 10, that's good. You know, that's good at the plate. So it's just a matter of all those lessons of resiliency, teamwork, hard work, um, competitiveness. That's, and particularly as a woman, in a male-dominated world, uh, in the C-suite, I was the only woman on on my senior team, but I had the tools to compete and that's what sports did for me. Title IX is just one of the most important pieces of legislation we've ever had in the United States. and This is personal to me because I actually work in public policy now. Some of my work is in the public policy arena, so I know what legislation can do and how it has changed lives. If you look at senior executives, women executives in the workplace today. The overwhelming majority of them have benefited by competing in sports. That would never have happened if not for Title IX. So we are all here today. We are better as a country, as a society, because we have given, let's face it, half of our population the, the ability to compete, learn the great lessons of sport, and to contribute and give back to the, to the country and to their organization.
0: Oh, great stuff from uh, Debbie Hauer and Shelly Carlin, uh, who made the $1 million gift back to UCLA softball. UCLA 1982, that was right around the time of the uh, Title IX uh, legislation. And, of course, that got the NCAA involved with women's sports, as they had been for the men's sports for so long. 40th anniversary coming up of that very first NCAA championship. And Smitty, I love what they had to say about first and foremost teamwork and, you know, friends for life for uh, for a lot of uh, women that that we grew up playing sports with.
1: Okay, so how great was that um, interview listening to Debbie? She's talking about what happened in what inning. Right. We all do that still to this day. Doesn't matter. It was 40 years ago. Okay, She's talking about that game like she just played it yesterday. And I love the quote when she says, just don't hit into a double play, right? Every one of us, we always say that, right? When we're (laughs) going up in a pressure situation, just don't hit into a double play. So I love the fact 40 years ago, we have athletes thinking the same way that our current generation of athletes are are thinking. It just shows how the game um, is small in some ways, but yet has grown so much. I love Title IX, uh, 50-year anniversary, 40 years of uh, the Women's College World Series. We've come a long way, ladies. We've got a long way to go, but we've, we've come a really a long way.
5: I just I feel so grateful. Like I'm just like I want to reach in and hug Debbie. I want to hug Shelley and say thank you because to be the first, you know, I mean to be that first championship. It sounds all cool now in the rings and and Debbie alluded to it a little bit but the sacrifice and they're paying for their own uniforms. I mean Sue Inquist talks about this all the time, like you know borrowing from you know, and they're academically trying, you think that you know, the benefits that we've all been able to have as, as student athletes, what Title IX has been able to provide in scholarship and, and, you know, facilities, and I mean, where the game is now, it's so freaking exciting, but thank you. I'm just so grateful for these women, because this was still a decade after Title IX. I mean, it was, Still taking time even after the legislation for these women to be able to come in, have a championship for the NCAA and that ring that Debbie, that Debbie talked about. So I, I'm i just really grateful because these women's stories need to be told more. I, I encourage everyone that's listening to to do more reports, to Google more, to understand the women that came before you because it's because of them that we're sitting here calling
3: these games in amazing places and having where college softball is where it's at today. Well, and I can't lie, Jess, this year sitting in the studio that we have now out in right field at the Women's College World Series, I turned around after we did our opening show and I got emotional because I remember playing at the Women's College World Series when only the finals were on TV and the stadium was filled with our moms and dads (laughs) and hopefully Oklahoma or Oklahoma State was in it so that the place was packed, right? And When it comes to watching just how our game has changed, how it's grown, and how much it is loved by people all around the world now, we're now seeing the benefits that started back in 1982, not in Oklahoma City, but in Omaha. I went back and and looked
2: at the scores from 1982, and I thought that it was interesting because looking at the scores, the most runs that was scored in a game was five one time. Um, and it was, I think Western Michigan scored five runs. But then um also like there were five one to nothing games. And so those are the games out of 13, by the way, there were only 13 games played. So five of them were one um that were uh 1-0 games and you just don't you just don't see that very often but like I thought it was cool to go back and and to your point Jenny like see how the game has progressed so much, especially offensively, to see all those low scoring games and shutouts and pitcher's duel.
0: That's because UCLA also had Debbie Doom and uh, she was winning the first of her three national championship games to this date that has not been matched. We've had pitchers that have won two national championship clinching games, but never three. That was the first of three for Debbie Doom back to 1982 as we get set to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the women's college world series. We'll have more all month long on the uh, seven innings podcast here for Women's History Month. By the way, that JDH reference, Jenny Dalton Hill, National Championship MVP back in 1996 <laughs> in Columbus, Georgia, leading the Arizona Wildcats to the natty over the Washington Huskies. All right, uh, still to come, uh, we're we going to shag some stats. we got the SEC opening weekend to deal with. Also, Amanda Scarborough is back with the ever-popular mailbag, but the, she's going to lead us right now in our discussion about some perfectos we had a lot of perfect games last week for the pitcher scarborough as they start to take the game back from the hitting we saw on the first couple of weekends.
2: Ironic. I was just talking to all these one and nothing games, and low scoring games. And now we're going to talk about the perfect games, even though there's a ton of offense. Um, I'm just going to talk about a couple and then I'm going to toss it to Maddie. Uh, but Coric or Georgina Coric um, not only recorded her thousandth strikeout of her career, but then she threw a perfect game the next outing, which I thought was really cool. And I mean, how, awesome of a year is Georgina Korek. Somebody asked in the mailbag, which we don't have to answer right now, but I'm just saying somebody asked if she has potential to, to win national player of the year, which is just something for us to start thinking about. And then um, just one more Lauren Krings uh, at Missouri. She also threw a perfect game. So Jen Schroeder was not able to, um, what's the right word to, whenever you talk about it, because she was in the studio, I think last during the postseason and she mentioned it and a studio hit. And I know Larissa Anderson was not happy with her about mentioning the perfect game going on. So Jen didn't break it up. So Lauren Krings has got the perfect game for Missouri.
4: Yeah, and speaking of Lauren Krings, I thought it was interesting listening to uh, Coach Larissa Anderson after that game talking about what the thought process that went into to starting Lauren Krings in that game, and she actually had somebody else in mind initially, but then when she kind of looked at the swing matchup, she decided to go out there with Lauren Krings, and of course ended up working out perfectly, pun intended, right there. But of course, um, you know a couple other names to, to mention: Megan Feremo uh, for UCLA also put, pitched a perfect game as well as Beth alluded to earlier on um, in the season. But you mentioned it, Amanda. I don't think we can say enough good things about Georgina Corrick and just the way that she handles herself out in the circle. And they're another battery uh, where Josie Foreman, the sophomore catcher, is calling the pitches back there behind the plate. And not too often do you see Corrick shaking off those pitches so you can really tell that they've got a good – relationship out there in the circle and just the way that she's able to paint those corners and and almost change the way that she pitches depending upon the batter that's up has made her so successful throughout her career. And I cannot wait to see what she does the rest of the season.
3: And I love the fact that they're calling their own game because I think the heartbeat of the game is the thing that gets lost every now and again between the battery. And so I love the fact that they put that out there as well, that, Hey, they were the two that called it, but let's also not forget at Baylor Casey West. Perfect game, the first perfect game in school history. Five groundouts, five flyouts, and five strikeouts in their 9
0: nothing win over Prairie View A&M. Well done, well done. On the perfecto side, congratulations. I think we're all in agreement. Gina, uh, Georgina Korak, I think, has won everybody else's Player of the Week honor, so I think she is also the seven-innings uh, Player of the Week as she hits a 1,000 strikeouts. You know who else had a 1,000 career strikeouts? Kira Garrell. Right now, we are very Kira The esque the frontrunner for today's episode name, or it could be incorrigible, incorrigible, not easily swayed or influenced, incorrigible. I'm just saying that could be a nickname, USF. You can borrow that if you'd like. Moving on to our mailbag, Scarborough, we got some questions from the folks at home. They are uh, ready to query our panel of experts, Bemo, Smitty, Scarborough, JDH, Jess, and Maddie, what you got? Okay, so we were just talking about the
2: pitchers. So let's go to a pitching one, just off of that good segue. Napomo five six one asks, how many pitchers, starters, and relievers does a team need to make a deep run through the NCAA postseason? So, what do we? How many do we feel like a solid pitching staff should have, you guys?
3: Well, I think gone are the days where you can just have one. We've seen national championships won with just one pitcher, but that was prior to That in 2005, where we added that championship series, but honestly, I think it's going to take, you've got to have two solid pitchers who are almost in ace form. Coach Hutch calls them her deuce at Michigan, but I think you have to have a number three. I don't think it's possible for you to win a national championship on one arm anymore. It's going to take two quality and definitely a third that can step in if anything happens.
1: Uh, so um, I want to jump in on that, Jenny. I agree 100%, but I'm going to call it a two plus. Okay, so a two plus. So is it a number three pitcher or is your your plus your offense that can put up six, seven, eight runs a game? I think the more potent your offense is, you can get away with a smaller number of pitchers. But I think you definitely need your your two aces maybe a third go-to or an offense that just helps your your aces out uh, when maybe they get in a little trouble. So two plus is my answer.
5: And to go off two plus what I like now where the game is has headed and honestly where it's been for a few years is to have those two aces, but to understand the importance of a bullpen pitcher, to understand someone that can come in the game in relief. And we are seeing the utilization of pitchers being able to play off each other. So I love that question because I think for pitchers to understand That it's not just about being the ace, the complete game, I'm going to come in and just throw, but actually your role as a pitcher, because what I'm seeing more in the NCAA tournament is a pitcher that can come in the fourth inning and shut them down and not be the starter, not have to be the superstar, but the two plus, meaning you have two or three pitchers that maybe don't wow you with all the stuff, but have some sick movement that can at least get one time through the order, and that can be the difference of the game.
2: I personally think on a staff, you need four or five, and that's not to say that they're all going to get the same amount of innings, but I, I think to what you don't see on TV in the games that we call is that there are oftentimes at practice, these pitchers are throwing live to hitters. The coaches want to get their, their team at bats. And so you can't be using your number one, number two, and tire them out during the week. So you still want to be able to get your hitters, some looks and have a deeper staff that can show different looks to
0: your hitters in preparation for who you're going up against, Beth. That, that could be two pitchers and a Kirk Walker. If you can find a Kirk Walker uh, to do that for your for your bullpen sessions and your your pregame, you're, you're in good shape. What, what will be interesting to see is, I agree with what Jess said, we've seen the emergence of a reliever or somebody that can grab uh, two or three innings for you in a game, but will the new World Series format where the games are stretched out, you don't have to play necessarily more than one game a day, you may be able to go back to that two starters who can get you complete games. What else we got in the mailbag, Scarborough?
2: All right. Two more. And they're very different from each other. So This is from hustle 1960. Do you think batters are better because they can adjust quickly or maybe because pitchers have movements that give away the pitch? Definitely. I would say adjust quickly. Um, I do
5: think pitchers give away almost all of their pitches. But to think that that's going to what you're relying on to be a good hitter, that's just like a gift. Like when you get into a game and it's like, oh, we got the change up today, ladies, like or we picked the rise ball, like, yes, icing on the cake. But what makes you a great hitter, you're going to have the mechanics, all that is the ability to be able to adjust within and at bat, to understand and recognize your body to know that awareness. And please, you guys just gave so much credit to pitchers and catchers finally calling their own games. How about hitters? understanding how to call their own game within a bat and not look to coach, not look to dad or mom and be like, how do I make this adjustment? I see that so much, even in the college games still, where that's reliance of like, oh my gosh, I swung and missed. What happened? Tell me, give me that feedback. No girl, like you find that within a bat. And that's truly what makes a great hitter.
4: I think, too, not just being able to adjust within your at-bat, but adjusting as the pitch is on its way to you as well. How many times as hitters have we been fooled on a changeup, but we were still able to keep our hands back or keep our weight back and drive that thing back up the middle? So to your point, Jess, not having so much of a mechanical swing of everything has to be fundamentally perfect every single time, because it's not always going to be that way. Um, But I think some of the best hitters uh, have a combination of both, right? So you can make the adjustments up at the plate, but also you can take advantage of what whatever the pitcher is tipping on their way to you. I always found it was easier to hit when you know which pitch was coming. And uh, that's uh, made a career off of that.
3: You and me both Maddie, that's exactly how it is. And I've had some of the ugliest swings produce a home run. So I think it's not just adjusting within an at-bat, but adjusting within a pitch to be able to recognize that changeup, hit it long. But one of the things that these players have that we didn't have is video. So they're able to see the pitcher before they face her to be able to pick up those things. Is she tucking a knuckle on a rise ball? Is she holding a grip a certain way in her drop ball? So I think video is a huge part of it. And the teams that are utilizing that are having a better time adjusting within at-bats. Okay. Good segue,
2: Jenny. Thinking, talking about things that they have that we didn't have Aham 26 wants to know what is one aspect of college softball that we have now that you wish you had during your playing days, example, NIL more technology, bigger and not even bigger, but just a transfer portal and bigger facilities. So, um, what do you guys wish that you would have had? And, and two, what do you wish that like, you're happy
1: that you didn't have Can I jump in and say D, all of the above? Or or is that one of the uh, the answers? That's what I'm going to say. All of it. You know, I I think all of those things are important. The thing that I love are the stadiums. You know, I was that generation. We played on a lot of city um, park fields and just like, you know, there weren't even outfield fences for Lord's sakes, you know? Um, So I I love the fact that there's some amazing facilities, but D, all of the above.
4: I'm with Michelle, all the above, uh, on everything. Uh, You know, the first thing, of course, that came to mind was NIL. I think that's a huge thing, something that, you know, I think a lot of us wish we could have taken um, advantage of. But the other thing that kind of jumped out to me when I watch these players nowadays, they are so strong. They are just, I mean, they, you can just tell that they have spent so much time in the weight room. And of course we did as well. Um, But I think there's a lot of technology advancements in what specifically to work on in the weight room that they've really taken into account and it's benefited all these players on the field. So that's something that maybe I wish I would have started earlier. Um, I know that I I had a a trainer when I was in high school that worked a lot on my footwork. Um, But I think I wish I would have focused more on the elite weight training earlier, maybe give me some more muscle so that I didn't wait until my senior year to finally be able to hit the ball out of the park consistently. But I think just the sheer strength of these girls and how early they're able to get that strength is something that I wish I had.
5: That is so dang true. And and to answer the second part of the question, because it's easy to sit, I mean, we could go on and on about all the things, right? That, but, but what do we wish we didn't have? I and mean, part of it is, When I look at the technology and the numbers and the access to information, I am so grateful that I did not because I, I mean, nerd, like just would have dove in. And I do now, like, I mean, Smitty, like with all like the numbers and the, I mean, there's so much to look at and, and not just the statistics and how we can, you know, all the situational stats and stuff, but actually what we're able to use with video technology and break down everything. It's really cool. But I do think sometimes we get so into that, that we forget what it's like to feel, to play, just the rawness of the game. And I, I personally know myself, and if I had access to all of that stuff, like total dork, I would have been like so in the dugout, I'd miss a bats. I'd be like, wow, I'm watching this and I'm trying to do this. And I'd be in my head,
3: and not able to just play. 100% Jess, it comes down to being unconscious and competent, being able to stay athletic and not let the numbers run through your head. But ladies, TV, how have we not talked about all of the exposure that the athletes are able to get. And I know when I sent my daughter to school, one of the things that I was grateful for was that I was going to be able to watch her on TV because she was going to be 26 hours away from me. I was not going to be able to get there. And TV has opened up the world to be able to let us see all these amazing athletes. And that was not available to me as a player. My mom and dad had to drive to see me play or they were not going to watch it. So I am grateful that ESPN has given us this platform to be able to showcase these athletes and let us watch games happening all over the country.
2: Yeah, agree with that, and then I'll add just better uniforms. Like there's better uniforms now, and just the way that you feel about technology is the way that I feel about nil and social media and followers and having to do deals and negotiations. Like there is a positive side to that, but I think that it would have stressed me out and been too much to think about as like, with school and, and softball.
0: Two things: one, breathable fabric. Some of us older folks remember you'd have overnight before the game, we would stretch our uniforms over like a chair in the room and, and stretch stretch our shorts. We wore shorts back then. remember that, ladies? You'd have to stretch them out overnight over pieces of furniture because the fabric was so hot and so uh, itchy it was unbelievable. And number two, ponytails. I played back in the day, if I have to see Smitty's mullet one oh, more Smitty. time, I'm going to blow up a little bit of my mouth, okay? Those are the two. two things that have been the most important in the advancement of the sport, breathable fabric and ponytails. Thank you very much.
2: And on that note, the mailbag is
0: closed until next week. I did, I did get one late text in here that I need um, uh, Scarborough and Smitty in particular to respond to. This it must be because of the time difference. It's from uh, Ueno Nippon number one. She wants to know when the hell are some of these coaches and pitchers going to throw to
1: Jocelyn Allo, please. Yukiko Ueno would we'll probably go right at her, right? Do, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. I hope someone throws to her in Hawaii and she can yes. you know, set the record at home. Go yes. Jocelyn Allo. Goodbye. The why, wait,
2: but why did they throw to her until she tied it? And for the most part, they were throwing to her. And then all of a sudden it's like, nobody wants to throw to her. It's the weirdest thing. Just pitch to her. Let's go. But maybe it's a blessing in disguise so that she can hit it in Hawaii.
5: For our pitchers though. I want to know, like, were you ever told, I mean, you were told, I'm sure you had to intentionally walk batters that happened, but like, What's that feeling like as a pitcher when you're, like, basically, like, she's going to beat you, which I feel like is the mentality sometimes. I get their situational and stuff. But how did you feel when your coach told you to intentionally walk a batter?
1: Oh, yeah, I didn't like that at all. Um, I probably begrudgingly would have done it, but um because my coach was asking me. But yeah, as a pitcher, if you're in that circle and you want the ball, you you think you can get every batter out. Um now I didn't pitch against her, thank goodness. So um maybe uh I would have just buzzed the tower a couple of times and gone low out and hope she whiffed at it.
2: <laughs> in in hype or before college, I feel like that never happened. In my freshman year, we were playing Washington and I was pitching against Kristen Rivera at the Mary Netter tournament. And um, they told me to not intentionally walk her, but to pitch around her. And I'm like, well, whatever. So I pitched to her and I think it was, a, it goes good at bat goes deep in the count. And she hits a f- deep fly ball to left field. My left fielder catches it like back against the wall. And I was just in so much trouble when I came off of the field that I pitched to her, but I got
0: her out and we won that game. <laughs> I I'll never forget uh, 2005 champ series. Michigan did not pitch to Emily Zaplatosh. UCLA did pitch to Sam Finley it worked out for Michigan and I'll never forget we you know talking to Sue Enquist after why did you pitch to her and she simply said because we're UCLA and we don't back down from anybody and I had to respect both sides I had to respect Hutch for doing what she had to do to win I had to respect Sue for going after you know the best player with their best pitcher Jelly Seldon I I have a lot of respect for that Smitty.
1: Yeah. And you know, Beth, to your point, I, I love that because when the game is on the line, I think you absolutely, you pitch around Jocelyn Allo, you pitch around whoever is in that position because you don't want their best player to beat you. But she's going after a home run record. It's her first at bat and nobody's on base. You know, I, I think that at some point people need to to pitch to her because let's face it, we have records so they can be broken. I mean, that, that's, that's really the reason we track everything. All right, that's our mailbag for this week. Send
0: us your thoughts if you want to get on the air at seven innings podcast on social media. You know what comes up eighth in the batting order? It's time to do a little shagging of the stats. This week on Shagging Stats. All right, who wants to who wants to lead us off? Do you want me to you want me to start us off this week? I'm gonna I'm gonna shag some stats right now with Billy Andrews. The sophomore at the University of Nebraska, who is currently the home run leader in college softball with 12, but more more significantly, she has a five game home run streak going on right now as they head into their weekend of action. So Billy Andrews, keep it going. She's also playing with her sister, Brooke, which is a lot of fun for the Huskers. What you got for us, Maddie? Well,
4: I'm taking it to the SEC, and freshman from Mizzou, Kara Daly, had herself an absolute weekend. It looks like I stole Michelle. Yes, I can steal things, too. It's not just Kayla, bro. Uh, but I had a home run in every single game this past weekend, and that was her first time playing at Mizzou Stadium. So big shout-out to her. Sorry, Michelle.
3: Well, in that, in that vein of stealing things, because I think I stole two of Kayla's things last week, so I'm going to give a shout-out to Kayla. This week, so Kayla Koalik is Kayla Bro's favorite, right? We all know that. But when it comes to Kayla Koalik, she hit 500 for her batting average last year. This moment, right now, her sister Gabby Koalik, who plays at Saint Louis University, is actually ahead of her sister, hitting 488 right now, while Kayla Koalik is hitting 483. So kind of cool for her to be able to step ahead. But I also want to give a shout out to Alabama as well their average attendance through 10 games right now is sitting at 3,814. So for me, that shows you where our game is going because at the Rhodes house, they definitely know how to show up.
2: We have a lot of sec shagging stats. Cause I'm going to take it to Arkansas where KB sides has more stolen bases by herself than Arkansas had all of last year. She has 14 stolen bases last year. Arkansas had four as a team that 14 though. If you combine the shortened 2020 season and 2021, they're the same number. They had 14 in those two, co- two combined seasons. And that's how many KB sides already has added speed to that offense.
5: All right. So after we have 50 years of Title IX, this was like, I need to educate because I feel like people really don't understand. And by the way, you got a project to work on. You got something that you need to write about. Like, please understand what Title IX is. So my shag and stat is in Women's History Month. We go back to right before Title IX was enacted in 1972. There were 27,800 Female college athletes that made up fifteen percent, one five, fifteen percent of all student athletes in college, as of this past year, we have two hundred and eight thousand one hundred fifty. We make up forty four percent. In fifty years, we have been able to provide those opportunities. And by the way, it's not just college. And in high school, it has grown nine hundred and ninety percent for high school female athletes to be able to have the opportunity to play sports. So please, we hear Title IX all the time. Educate yourselves. Continue because the legislation needs to stay strong and we need to continue to battle because 44% ain't good enough. I want it higher.
1: <laughs> I love it. Good one. Good one, Justin. I'm I appreciate you putting a lot of uh, information in that. So I had more time to Google a new stat, uh, which I am going to go with Katie Simmons from uh, Texas. The freshman, outstanding this last week. She hit uh, is hitting 429 overall at one point. She had uh, four home runs in five games. She's done an outstanding job at first base and behind the dish. 21 total bases, seven RBIs, a couple of stolen bases as well. So the freshman, a uh, getting it done, with uh with the long ball and the batting average. That's
5: adjusting within a bat. Not nice. good. <laughs> she didn't even know what
0: was bad coming. Bad <laughs> 44% ain't good enough folks. <laughs> Keep it going. Keep pushing. Keep striving. Uh that's our uh, Shaggin' Stats segment for this week. That was Shaggin' Stats. Uh, it, it is, uh, we're gearing up towards uh, the start of league play in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, I just got a, um, a press release uh, from the league office. Uh, they've changed their motto to, it just means score. So as we get set for uh, opening weekend of the SEC, where eight teams are presently averaging over six runs per game. Smitty, you and I are getting ready for that LSU Alabama series where it
1: just means score, except against the Alabama pitching staff. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, it's been the long ball. It's been the average. You've heard me complain a little bit about the uh, umpire strike zone. I would like to see a little bit more leniency given to the to the pitchers. Uh, nobody watches games to see walks. But yeah, I mean, this the, the conference has just been outstanding uh, w- with their ability to put up the long ball. The one thing I do find interesting, just real quick about uh, Alabama, is that they have 19 home runs on the year. So they're scoring their runs on a multiple of different ways. It'll be interesting to see them going up against a strong LSU pitching staff and vice versa. LSU has struggled a little bit offensively going up against Fouts and company. I think it's going to be interesting, but this is a stacked conference. Uh, but I feel like our sport, the bats are definitely it's the year of the bat.
3: When you mentioned the year of the bat, it comes down to the long ball for me in the SEC. Right now, you've got six of the top 15 programs in the country with the long ball. Georgia comes in third with 37. Mississippi State, a team we don't talk about very often, with 33 home runs, is fifth in the country. Auburn with 31 is tied for sixth. Missouri and Tennessee tied at 30, and they go head-to-head this weekend. Both of those teams have been on a winning streak and have not lost since they each played UCLA. So for me, I wonder... Where Tennessee, Mizzou are going to be able to come across on that one, and I also want to see who's going to be able to out-hit the other this weekend.
4: Speaking of that matchup, Jenny, of course, you've got to mention that Coach Chris Malvo. Malveaux- is now coaching for Tennessee and he spent the past couple of seasons at Missouri. So that's really the big interesting dynamic that I'm looking forward to to watching this weekend is of course the, the offense has been the strength for Missouri the past couple of years, but seeing what he's been able to do over at Tennessee and of course them going head to head. And speaking of offense, I think Auburn's another team that has really had an offensive explosion this year. They have fantastic pitching in the circle between Maddie Penta and Shelby Lowe, but they needed that offensive production. And so far this season, They've been getting it and they're going up against Texas A&M this weekend. So it'll be good, a good test for them.
3: Yeah. I'm interested to
2: see how much Shelby low pitches for Auburn Maddie. There's been rumblings that she has had an injury has been pitching through injury. So, um, uh, Penta did a great job for them. She got six wins last weekend, but in terms of injuries too, I noticed that Ashley Rogers didn't pitch after Friday last weekend. So for that Tennessee, Missouri series, were they just resting her because they knew that this is going to be a big weekend for her, but I mean, she barely pitched. She pitched one and a third against Virginia on Friday. And that was it. Aaron Edmondson though, for them, I feel like has just been pitching great. Most starts, most innings, like what a big pickup for Tennessee. The fact that they got her from Texas tech, she's left-handed brings a lot to them. Uh, finally I'll be, um, Doing Mississippi State, Florida. And I just think it's really interesting that Mia Davidson set the SEC home run record and she broke Lauren Hager's home run record. And I just feel like Florida, you know, for a long time, if not forever, were the home run queens, right? Because it was just one Gator breaking another Gator's record and Mia Davidson broke Hager's record. So excited to see uh, Mia Davidson play in Gainesville against the Gators.
0: Good stuff, everybody. That's the SEC opening weekend. Uh, coming up this weekend. A lot of those games will be on the uh, ESPN network. So make sure to check your local listings. And if you don't have ESPN Plus, make sure you do get it. Beth Mowens, Michelle Smith, Amanda Scarborough, Jenny Dalton Hill, Jess Mendoza, Maddie Shipman. Thanks so much for joining us on the 7 Innings podra- uh, Podcast. Strong from start to finish, from hokey pokies to because we're all weird, to call your own game, to just don't hit into a DP, to... Easier to hit when you know what pitch is coming, for crying out loud, uh, to breathable fabric. But we got to go back to Doza. It all started with Kira Garalesk, and that is the name of this week's At 7 Innings podcast. We hope to see you real soon out there on the road to the Women's College World Series.